HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com. Hello there, Greenhorns. This is Severin again with another episode of Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today I'm joined on the phone by Karen Williams from Red Dog Farm in Chimacum. How do I say that? Chimacum. Chimacum, Washington. And she is an organic farmer, and her name is her dog, her farm is named for her dog. How is your How is your farm doing, and how is your dog doing this morning? Oh, they're both doing well. It's really wet and rainy over here, so we're we're a little soggy, but everyone's good. So, um, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about today is marketing. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe we should start with just an introduction of yourself and and your farm operation and. Um, and what you particularly pride yourselves on? Um, sure. Um, so um, I've been farming for about the last 14 years, and um, at, I've been at Red Dog. I started Red Dog a little over three years ago, and um, the farm is certified organic. We're, it's 23 acres total, and we're currently at about 13 acres in cultivation. Um, we grow mixed vegetables, berries, cut flowers, and we also do plant starts. Um, and let's see, what do I, what do we pride ourselves on? Just a a really good variety of um, produce, um, top quality, of course. Um, I like to do all my marketing locally, so we mostly just local, um, just um, distribute to Olympic Peninsula, which is the kind of the the larger area that we're in. And, um, yeah, I guess that's about it. So, um, so you're doing a lot of direct marketing, and on your scale, that means um, that you're meeting a lot of your consumers. Would you That's mind right. just giving us a little primer on, for those of us who are just getting started in farming and who are working to finesse our market, our market etiquette, some of the things that you found in terms of presentation, um, good manners, and the kind of attitude to take when you're 
face-to-face selling your produce? Sure. Um, well, I, I market through a couple different avenues. I do um, farmer's markets, and this year we're doing three local farmer's markets. Um, we also have a CSA program, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and that's a subscription program where um, customers sign up at the beginning of the season and get a box of produce every week for the whole season. And then um, we have a, a on-site farm stand. Um, I also sell to several area restaurants and to um, some other some local retailers as well. Like there's a pretty large food co-op in Port Townsend. I sell to them. Um, and as far as you know, what's worked well for me? Def- definitely diversifying my marketing strategy. You know, having all those different outlets. Um, you know, sometimes. Of course, there's crop failures. Sometimes, you know, a restaurant may be slower than they thought they would be or sales may be slower at a certain market. So it's really nice to be able to bounce the produce between all the different markets and, and kind of just not have my eggs all in one basket. Um, that's been really helpful. And then as far as face-to-face, um, you know, just being really upfront about people, about what what I am capable of and, and what I'm not, um, just knowing my limitations are. I've learned to, you know, start small and just grow a little bit gradually every year. And I'm definitely ambitious and try to try to do a little bit more every year, but I try not to overextend myself. And, um, you know, I, I really make an effort not to, to tell someone that I can do something that I'm not, you know, 95% sure that I actually can pull off. Um, you know, in a market setting, um, just being really friendly and, you know, just kind of that basic stuff, being friendly, being um, open, um, sharing ideas about what you cooked for dinner last night, um, having really good presentation, having the product actually look really fresh and the display really nice. Um, Having the same person at market every week can be really helpful. Um, Yeah, so those are some ideas off the top of my head anyway. Um, And so you say that you've been farming for 14 years, but then only in the last three have you been running your own operation. Maybe you could, again, just summarize the different stages of your farming life so that people who are, you know, dreaming their farm dream can get a sense of, you know, one particular path into ag and and what that took. Sure. Um, Well, I've actually, I've been running my own farm for six years. It's only been three years at this last, at this last farm. Um, But I'll start from the beginning. So in in 1998, I started, I went to Europe for an extended stay. I stayed for two years and I was woofing, woofing around um, on different organic farms over there. And then um, for the last year, I actually ended up finding a farm to work at and, and stayed at that one farm for a year. So um, that was my first introduction to farming. I had previously I'd grown up in the suburbs of Seattle. I had, you know, not even had a vegetable garden. It was, it was all new to me, and the rural lifestyle living off the land was completely new. And so that was a really eye-opening experience, and I completely loved it. Um, from there, I um, decided that I wanted to finish my degree, and so I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, and I, um, and I did finish my degree. I, I did their sustainable agriculture program and, and also worked. They have an organic farm at Evergreen State College, and I worked on the farm for the whole time that I was a student as well as a couple of years afterwards um, and just learned a, a whole bunch through that process. Um, I can't say enough about going to school and just getting down the basics of, um, of farming. You know, that includes the, the actual science of farming, horticulture, biology, botany kind of practice, as well as soil science. And then most importantly, um, if you can find a school that has bookkeeping, um, farm management, production management, um, accounting, anything like that is really, really helpful. 
Um, and then next in my path, then when I was sort of ready to move on um, from working at Evergreen, I, um, I found a farm for lease up in this, the same area that I'm at now, um, a small farm called Old Tarboo Farm. And it was a really great next step for me. It was a farm that was, um, had been run as an organic farm previously, um, and there were some new owners that had just bought it from. The previous owners were farmers, and the new owners bought it sort of as an investment property, but they wanted someone to, to farm it. And it was great for me to walk into. There was, um, you know, the fields were set up, the irrigation was in place, there was a greenhouse, there was a barn, there was a tractor I could use. Um, and so I, I was able to have my own business at that place and, and, and sort of go through the process of having that responsibility and I had to take out some loans and, you know, having, having complete responsibility and, as a business owner but not having to have to, have to purchase all the infrastructure up front. And, um, again, I would totally recommend that to anyone who wanted to get into farming is, is find some kind of middle ground between working on a farm and actually owning your own farm and just, so you can just try it out and, and not have all that burden. And then I was at Old Tarboo Farm for two years. Um, and then I took a year off from a serious farm commitment, and I, I kind of wandered around a little bit. I, I did some traveling. I worked on some different farms, you know, all over the West Coast. And I was also looking for farmland to buy. Um, and I found this piece of land that I'm on now, and I had a lot of help from the community here to purchase this piece of land, um, particularly from the Jefferson Land Trust in Port Townsend. Um, they are a wonderful organization. I know there's a lot of land trusts across the country, but um, if, if anyone is thinking of buying land, um, it's definitely a good resource to, to talk with, with those people. Um, and so I was able to get, get on this piece of land, and I've been here since late 1997 and have just um, been in the process over the last three years of putting in infrastructure. This land was just a raw piece of land when I bought it, so I put in you know, a barn and irrigation and septic and um, greenhouses and driveway and electric and I mean just you know all the kind of really basic stuff um, and it's, it's been really fun it's been you know really really challenging um, it's really a lot of work to build a farm up from scratch um, it's very rewarding but um, it's something that I'm really glad that I had a lot of under experience under my belt and I've worked in a lot of different farms before I undertook that so I could um, really see all the systems that other farms use and kind of pick and choose which ones were going to work for me and, and just have all the experience before I got started in kind of creating this, this new project. Yeah, what you're saying about that in-between time, I feel like that speaks, that's, that speaks a lot to me. Um, that's where I am in my farm career. But also it seems like that's sometimes uh, a challenge to feel comfortable with yet another management position when you're kind of jonesing for your own thing. Uh -huh. um, and so it's nice to hear you on the other side of that decision feeling really positive about taking the time to kind of go to farmer grad school and, yeah. and have to um, be No, I hear you. And I, when I was in that place, it was really challenging to have to work with landlords who sometimes have different goals for the land than I would have for it if I owned it. And, and just to kind of to have that connection to the land but not be totally responsible, for, sometimes that was really challenging because, um, you know, I, wa I wanted to have that responsibility. I just w wasn't ready for it yet and didn't know it. So it's a hard place to be in, but I think it's looking back, it was really, really important. So. Well, and there certainly are, I think, increasing numbers um, just from my own experience talking about young farmer stuff, and I've been in farm conference mode for a while, and you know, landowner or prospective farm landowners just coming up to me left and right saying, 
hey, you know, I'm thinking about making an investment in some farmland. I'd really like to make a partnership with a young farmer and um, set up a business and help them out with infrastructure. So I feel, I feel like there's um, going to be more and more opportunity in that mm-hmm. place. And I think it's up to us as young farmers to really make sure that you um, work that opportunity in a positive way and don't get too bummed out by the fact that they misunderstand a lot of things about farming and yes. use it as a, as, a stepping, as a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's a little commentary, but um, maybe will you talk about the, just the, you're saying that you built your farm up from scratch. Mm-hmm. And that that you know is is often is often more challenging than restoring a farm. Um, what what's what's so great about having having the power to design it all? Could you say the last part again? I couldn't hear you very well. Oh, sorry. The last part was maybe just comment comment on when you build your own farm from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very expensive, but you do get the opportunity to really design the whole system, mm-hmm. and whether that's re- worth it in terms of the cost or not. Hmm. Like, um, if somebody was thinking about starting with blank land, would you counsel them to do that or not? I think I would say if you can find land that has, has already been developed in, in, you know, at least, in, at least partially, if not completely the way you want it, I, I mean, I think it'd be cheaper in the, in the long run to, to do that. Um, and, you know, you have to live with other people's mistakes or other people doing things maybe the way that you wouldn't have liked them, but I think it'd be worth it. You know, I, I would have much rather have bought land that, you know, had already at least had, you know, septic electric water on it. Um, and, you know, it would have been great to buy land that already has structure on it, so I wouldn't have to have built a structure right away. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I would recommend buying raw land. Um, I, yeah, it's doable and it's nice because you can set things up how you want, but you also have to have the money to do that, and it's everything is so expensive. And what I've had to do is just a little bit every year, and um, it, you know, it's just stepping stones every year. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think I'd say go for a land that was it already had some infrastructure on it and already had some some amenities. Basically. So you had no infrastructure, and the land that was that you got. Was it already in good condition? Had it been in, what was it, in hay or was it in vegetables already? Um, yeah, it was in excellent condition. It had been in hay for the last 10 years. It was uh, part of a dairy farm um, that it still exists to the north of me, um, and they had just subdivided off part of it um, just in order to make some money. And um, so it had been just hayed for the last several years. They hadn't sprayed anything on it. Um, and it was, you know, just this, an open field. Literally, um, it had you know it hadn't been worked up, so I had to I had to plow it and prepare the fields for vegetable growing. Um, but as far as the soil, it's just it's beautiful soil. And um, you're you're you have beautiful soil and you have beautiful farm crew. I'm looking at them on your website right now. Oh, great! Um, <laughs> yeah. And you have such beautiful flowers. I wonder if you could mm-hmm. talk a little bit, um, especially as a woman farmer. I am so attracted to growing cut flowers, and I. Do grow cut flowers, but um, I find it's it's quite a trick to to get that part of the business um, to really yield as much as it needs to to pay for all the time involved. Mm-hmm. Could you just talk about you know what part percentage of your business is flowers and and how you feel about it and is it 
does it pay for itself or is it just something that adds to your stand or how do you feel about flowers? Um, yeah, I, I also love growing flowers. Um, I can't really imagine growing vegetables without growing flowers. Um, as far as my business, it's a very, very small percentage of my business. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say probably maybe 2%, something like that. So it's, it's really small. Um, but I do feel like it does pay for itself. Um, I, I don't grow a huge variety of flowers. I think I grow maybe, um, 15 different kinds of flowers and then maybe 20 different, well, if you count the dahlias, I grow a lot of different dahlias, but if you don't count the dahlias, I maybe grow 20 different varieties and then add another 15 varieties for the dahlias. So I I don't have, I've not, you know, I don't have this huge variety of flowers, but I do try and, you know, always have some flowers from about July through October. And um, I, you know, I like them mostly for the, well, actually, no, if you count the tulips, we have tulips in April. So that's kind of the early, early flowers. Um, and I like to have them just mostly for the market display, just to really draw people in. Um, my strategy has been to do bulk flowers. I just cut uh, cut buckets of one kind of flower um, in each bucket and bring just the just the stems to market and let people make their own bouquets. Or sometimes I'll make bouquets for people. Um, and I found this to be really successful. And I just do a stem price and like a ten for I think it's ten for four dollars kind of price. Um, and it's just been really good to kind of draw people in and um, just add, definitely add some income to the farm. Um, but just doing the cut stems, it doesn't add a lot of labor because we're not taking time to make bouquets. Um, mm-hmm. And let's see what else. You know, and of course, you know, everyone knows that flowers attract beneficial insects, and so they, they bring that to, to, that to the farm. Um, they also kind of give the soil a break because they're not, most flowers don't require a lot of nutrients um, and aren't really heavy feeders. So they're kind of a good crop to to mix in with a vegetable system um, and just kind of, you know, to rotate through. Um, yeah, I love growing them. I, I wouldn't stop growing them, but um, I feel like they do pay their way. Um, that's that's good to hear. I'm, I'm excited because I, yeah, I want to keep growing flowers, and I want to figure out. Mm-hmm. I like this making other people do the bouquets. So mm-hmm. um, I was reading through some old um, little pamphlets that were prepared by ladies' clubs, um, and it was in a Grange Hall that they would meet and have flower arranging classes together or kind of flower arranging sessions. Oh, cool. And it's one of those home arts things that seems to have fallen away. Hmm. Um, okay, so the next question I have for you is about this crew of folks that you're farming with and mm-hmm. um, just a little bit a sense of the kinds of people who are choosing to become farmers if you find like there's more demand now than there used to be, or if you think that um, it's kind of the same, or how the scene is changing, um, who who's joining your farm and and where are they coming from? Hmm. Um, yeah, I've been blessed to just constantly have really good crew members on the farm. Um, people in the past have come from all over the country. Um, to work here, you know, it varies from year to year. Some years we get a lot more locals, and some years um, I get people who are moving to this area particularly to work on the farm. Um, in general, the people who apply for jobs here are, are really are pretty well educated. They're usually college graduates, um, sometimes in, in the first or second year after they've graduated. Sometimes they maybe have started a career for um, a couple years, five, even five or ten years, and then have decided they want to do something else and are kind of looking for their next career or maybe taking a break and, and just kind of exploring. Um, you know, we usually get, um, 
you know, people that just have really good attitude are fun to be around or know what hard work is. And, and I guess that's a part of it, too. Mostly people want, they want the, the hard work. Um, some of them have, you know, maybe worked more office-type jobs and want a break from that, or some of them maybe have always kind of been drawn to more physical labor. Um, but that's definitely a commonality with everyone that works here. Um, let's see. Not sure what else to say about that. Well, where do they – they come to you from all over. They're coming with those kinds of educated backgrounds, good attitude, mm -hmm. ready to work hard. And then where do they go next? Oh, where do they go next? Um, some of them go on to work at different farms. Um, some of them decide to go back to school. Um, this last year, actually, two, two farm crew decided to go to grad school after this experience, after many years of not, of not being in school. Um, some of them go on to other types of jobs. Um, uh, some of them decide farming isn't for them. You know, one season was enough and it was fun, but that, that was hard work and they want to do something else. Um, you know, a whole mix. Um, and some people do stay on sometimes for two or three years. Um, just a wide variety. I haven't yet experienced someone that I, that worked for me who became, who started their own farm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in the next five years that I see that and I, I look forward to that. That would be really rewarding for me to see that. Um, but, yeah, that hasn't happened yet, and I think that's just, you know, most of the time when people come to work here, it's their first, second, maybe even their third year working on a farm, and so um, I think it's, you know, er early on in their process of farming, generally. So you're attracting the early birds, and then they have, you know, what time will tell if they keep with it. Yes, exactly. Um, but probably for the early birds, it's great to see you in your um, in your farm infrastructure development, and this here beautiful hoop house that I see you guys building, that is a wonderful thing when you're a new farmer to, you know, it's great when you walk into a farm that has got all its systems dialed in and there's 50 years of, of fabulous things that have all been figured out and organized, but setting up, um, setting up new infrastructure is such a valuable learning experience and such a great reason to do your apprenticing um, with a younger farm. Mm -hmm. um, will you talk about how that hoop house project evolved? Um, the, the Hoop House project, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, well, the Hoop House, are you, we built two Hoop Houses last year. Is that what you're referring to? That's what I'm looking at, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think, I think it is really empowering for the crew to see the infrastructure being created and to see, yeah, exactly, and to see that, um, that you can, you know, as a young person, you can do these things, and it's not, you don't just have to walk into an already set up system. Like, you, you can just kind of plug away at it and do little by little, and you can do without for a long time and kind of do, um, do a lot with very minimal infrastructure and tools and, you know, not everything perfectly how you would dream it for it to be. So I think, I think that's really valuable for, for especially young people to see that, young farmers. Um, and... Yeah, the hoop house project last winter we built two two hoop houses. They're um, 20 feet by 95 feet steel frame hoop houses, and um, it was it was quite a process. It was my first time building a hoop house from start to finish as well. And um, you know we we set it all up and leveled it to make sure it was all really level and even, and um, dug holes for all the posts and poured concrete and anchored the posts and then just and tied it all together, tied all the hoops together. Um, a lot of screwing into metal overhead. It was pretty challenging work. Um, and then building, 
building the ends with lumber and the doors, and then finally putting on the film. And the whole process, I think, took, oh, I mean, I think we did, if we could have done it all just in a, in a short period of time, we could have done them both in probably a week. But, you know, we did half a day here and a couple hours there, and the weather kind of dictated different things. And But there were about, you know, regularly I think there were about three or four people involved in that um, whole process. And then for some of the projects, like putting on the plastic, we had, we brought in some other help. Some volunteers came to help us get that on before the wind picked up. But it, it was a great, it was a great process and um, really fun to be a part of and really fun to do with, with other people. Yeah. And beautiful, beautiful shape. Hmm. Um, okay, well, this is really great. And I, I'm thankful so much for your time and, and insight. And I wonder if you have any favorite um, words of guidance or um, favorite books or thoughts mm. on getting start a good start on this season. It's now March, and mm-hmm. I'm getting still a lot of people emailing saying, oh, I want to find a farm apprenticeship for this year. Um, mm-hmm. Would you maybe give them a gentle scold for not thinking about it until March? <laughs> um you know, I do have all my crew hired, so I think it's the late. If you've waited this late, it's hard. But there's always there's always farms where the crew is all set to go, and then um, and then someone drops out. Someone calls and said they can't do it. And so I've known a couple people that have um, not necessarily on my farm, but on other farms that they found the best people because someone had, who they who had committed in February dropped out, and then someone just showed up in March, and it was a perfect fit. So I think don't give up hope if you don't have your farm yet, and um, you know, just just keep following what interests you and um, keep asking questions and just keep having fun with it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Greenhorns Radio. I thank you all for your work and for your time, and I hope it's a good season. Thank you, Severine. following is a public service announcement from Beer Sessions Radio. Beyond the human and environmental casualties of the triple threat disaster in Japan, there will likely also be losses to our collective food culture, from miso and sake makers to outstanding fisheries. With help from the New York State Brewers Association, the Good Beer Seal, Beer Sessions Radio, and craft breweries alike, Jimmy Carboni is hoping to raise funds that will go directly to Hitachino, an excellent Japanese brewery, through a benefit at Brooklyn Brewery next Monday, March 28th from 7 to 10 p.m. In addition to beer, there'll be food from the Meat Hook, Jimmy's Number 43, Waterfront Ale House, and a few local Japanese restaurants. All money raised will go to Kiyuchi Brewery and Hitachino Beers, which they will distribute via humanitarian aid locally. To date, the brewery, which lost 500 bottles in the earthquake and suffered some damage to its physical plant, is filtering and bottling water for its community and providing them with food. You can read a letter about the quake's aftermath to Jimmy from Toshiyuki Kyuchi, the brewery owner, on his site. And you can buy tickets to the benefit on brownpapertickets.com backslash event backslash 166978. That's brownpapertickets.com slash event slash 166978. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. 
Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Boltley of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.